I'll tell you one thing is right now I live a pretty simple, grateful life. Okay. I don't have a lot of belongings. I don't have a lot of friends. I keep my circle of trust very small. And don't get me wrong, I got a lot of homies, you know, but Mm -hmm. as for like a real, this is who I confide in and you confide in me, it's small. I consider myself and anyone who knows me thinks I'm a very private man. Okay. Anyone who were to read my book would say otherwise, but, (laughs) but on the day to day, you know, so I think number one is that I am grateful for every day of my life, man. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I look at my kids and my wife and my animals, and we don't know what's going to happen in an hour in a week and i don't like holding on to grudges or fights or even having fights with my family you know Mm -hmm. and so it also has just taught me the importance of of stepping back and thinking rationally Mm -hmm. rather than emotionally because i tell you us starks man we are an emotional bunch (laughs) okay okay so yeah That was Robert Stark. He's a former army infantryman and the author of Warflower, a book about his upbringing in Alaska and his time in the military. His upbringing was a turbulent one. His dad was absent. His mom struggled with addiction. His brother spent time in prison and his stepdad is serving life in prison for murder. He says he was known as the kid with the family of degenerates, people who drink alcohol, did drugs, stole, and went to prison. Eventually, he found himself struggling with his own alcohol and drug problem. So he joined the army to travel and to learn more about himself. It was a part of his life that altered his way of thinking and understanding of the world. It's been 20 years since he served in Iraq, and he says he's still working through it. He talks about an experience when one of his fellow infantrymen shot and killed an Iraqi man under questionable circumstances. It was a moment that made him start questioning everything. What were they really fighting for? And how was this man's act so much different than the one that put his stepdad in prison for life? There was so much to work through after finishing his military service. On top of his family history, he was now thinking about the fog of war. So he found himself disassociating from his memories and isolating himself for days at a time, smoking weed and drinking. It took him years to step away from his substance abuse and to gain some clarity and accept the things he had seen and the things that he had done. He spent some time in India and Nepal doing yoga retreats and meditations. He would sit there and visualize the situations he struggled to understand. He would work through them as if he were the people acting them out. And then he would embrace them with love and understanding of what led them to making the decisions they made. It's a technique that helped him understand what he didn't understand. Today, in times of personal crisis, he regains his equilibrium by going on walks on his property in Happy Valley, Alaska. Peaceful walks in the woods, among the trees and the birds, and the mountains in the distance. He thinks of his wife and his daughters, 
and the man he wants to be. Loving, dependable, and present. So here he is, Robert Stark. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. There's this part in your book where you and your brother James are hanging out with your uncle, Railroad Joe, and he gives you guys some knowledge. Chaos happens. It is the way of the cosmos. How we deal with the chaos determines everything. Why do you think you remembered that? Because I feel like as I've grown in life, there seems to be endless chaos whether it's within my own heart and mind, my spouses, my friends, Mm -hmm. or just the world all around me. And there have been times where I dealt with the chaos in a very, very destructive way. Mm. And I think when I was writing it, I was looking back at, at the balance that that man provided for us. And that those words that he had told us when we were young just kept they kept ringing true. And throughout my life, you know, I've had so many instances where, where the words came back, but I shoved them aside because I didn't think it was possible. Mm, Okay. And so, yeah, I think that's why they stick, man. Cause it seems like they really do work. Mm -hmm. Do you remember a time when those words came to you and you did push them aside? Like you just said, Yeah, for sure. I remember there was a time when I was in Iraq and it was my first tour in Iraq. We were just about to go do a patrol and the chaplain was there for some reason and the chaplain gathered all the men around and said a prayer. And, you know, I was kind of in the background. I wasn't really big on prayer at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to his prayer and he was talking about how we were about to go out and fight the enemy. And these guys, they had their heads down and they were praying and praying. And inside of me was this, this anger, this fury, Mm. this warrior's rage of I'm about to kill these motherfuckers, dude. I don't give a fuck. Excuse my language. And, and then I had, I kept going back and I was thinking of that line that Joe had told me just finding you know how i react in this chaos how am i going to deal with this and i kept thinking about it but instead i just pushed it and i thought i don't care how Mm. i how i react is i'm about to be a g and i'm about to roll up on these dudes okay and you know i i can't say that it didn't work for me at the time to push it aside because i do believe when you're in war you need to be as savage as possible to get out of there with your head and heart Mm -hmm. however Mm -hmm. I think there at that time in particular, I could have been more, more calm and less savage, if you will. So, okay, yeah, that was one time, man. How do you think you got out of there with your head in your heart? When I first got out of the military in 2006, I don't think that my head and my heart were in the right place. No doubt. Okay. It impacted me and I didn't even see it. Okay. And I remember I was living 
off 15th and Carluck, right around that Black Angus. Mm -hmm, Fairview. Yeah. I was sharing an apartment with uh, with Danny Atkins's brother, Jason. Okay, okay. And Jason's, Jason's girlfriend at the time. And they hadn't moved in yet. And I was there, and I, I had a room. And all I had in the room was a painting of Jesus's crucifixion and all the onlookers. And it was all black and red. And I would sit there on the floor surrounded by bottles of Jaeger, beer, Goldschlager, whatever was around me, and big bags of weed. And I just sat there for days just smoking and drinking. And I'd go up to the, the, the what's that little bar there on the corner, man? I forgot what that was. Crossroads. Yep. I'd go to the Crossroads, yeah. And I'd sit there depressed, and I'd go back. And really, I don't think I got out of there with my head and heart quite like they were or like they are today, no doubt about it. But as the years have gone on and I was able to step out of the alcohol and the, and the bud, and I was able to start getting some clarity, mm -hmm. my head and heart were changed, no doubt, but I was able to accept more of the things that I did and that I saw and that we had to do. Mm-hmm. And, and just accept him and say, okay, like it is what it is, man. Like mm -hmm. I can't spend my whole life slitting my own wrists metaphorically because of what I did when I signed up, like it's nobody else's fault, but mine. And so, yeah, man, it wasn't right off the bat. And still today, you know, it's been 20 years since I was in Iraq and, and there's still times where my head and heart aren't right, man. You know? So, yeah. So it's, it's a work in progress, no doubt. Yeah. And how do you think you, you gained that clarity that you have now, even if it isn't always 100%? Man, you got some good questions. Are you a professional interviewer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I would have to say it's been so many different things, man. You know, okay. it was... It was... I spent six months living in a yoga house in guatemala okay and okay i did i did yoga every day six days a week ashtanga yoga and i was surrounded by other people who were living a clean life doing yoga prayer meditation and then that was a foundation for me regarding how to live a cleaner life mm. and from there i I went east to India and Nepal and I did different Buddhist retreats in, you know, the Dalai Lama's town there in Dharamsala and in other parts of Nepal where I was just silent you okay. know, for 14 days and learning different techniques from those Eastern traditions of how to forgive myself and forgive others through visualization meditations. And while I was there, I wasn't allowed to drink. I wasn't allowed to smoke bud. I wasn't allowed to smoke cigarettes. And so, yeah. you know, having those periods of cleanliness followed by, okay, now I'm alone. How am I going to use what I learned? And it would be, you know, a couple weeks or a few months of like, okay, I'm living clean. I'm living good. And then I'm trying to hang out with my bros or yeah. I'm trying to impress a girl mm -hmm. and I'm having three beers. I'm having six beers. And next thing you know, I'm old blackout Bob again, man. Blackout Woo. Bob. Okay. Is that your, your drunk yeah. name? <laughs> that was my drunk name. No doubt. What do you think it was about 
the silence and learning from those Eastern traditions that maybe got your mind a little bit, again, closer to being 100%? I think so much of it had to do with with being able to look past, at least what I felt, to look past the surface level of, oh, I'm Robert Joseph Stark. Mm -hmm. I'm 39 years old and I was born here and I was born there. And these are the things I've done. And to try to look deeper into the spirit, Mm -hmm. if you will, and who is the spirit within me? Where has the spirit been before? Where's the spirit going? Look at all these other people and they have spirits too, maybe. And there's imprints on them. And so instead of seeing and identifying as the combat veteran or the kid whose family was all in prison or whatever it was of like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm just a spiritual being and these things have happened and I'm trying to find more peace in accepting them. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of yeah, those were the main reasons. And here, you know, I've been to church. I've I've met people who were really into their Christian faith, but I haven't seen what I saw over there and learned over there, which was so much more about visualizations of, you know, visualizing others and forgiving them, like picturing that dude who I saw do a horrific thing and just by doing that and hugging him and telling him that I forgive him, mm-hmm. that that impacted me emotionally on the surface body of Robert Stark. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it impacted my depth. And so, yeah, you know, I, I try to be like Jesus, if you will, but it doesn't impact me the way that those Eastern tra- traditions did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a an act that you watched occur. I wonder if you don't mind, can you maybe walk me through the act? And then, you know, when you were over there experiencing these Eastern traditions, how you were able to come to terms with it and then accept it. Of course. Yeah. So when I was in Iraq in the Kirkuk area, there was a concrete facility plant is my belief. Now, forgive me if this whole story is incorrect because as the 18 year old private, this is what I remembered. Mm-hmm. So maybe some older folks at the time would say, oh, that wasn't right, whatever. Those details may be incorrect, but my understanding was there's a concrete plant in the center of Kirkuk and looting was happening and it was running rampant. And our main mission for at least three weeks a month. I can't remember the, the details, but was we would take our Humvees and we would drive into this concrete facility. You know, it was a big open air plant and there would be dozens and dozens of Iraqi men, maybe hundreds, and they would just dart. They would run away because they were grabbing rebar and sheet metal and everything that they could get from this building and from the grounds and and we would get out of our truck we'd chase them as fast as we could in the humvee and then Mm -hmm. you know we'd we'd come to a screeching halt dismount 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 
I'd jump out with three or four of my buddies and we'd chase these guys and tackle them. Mm -hmm. And then we'd flex cuff their arms behind their backs. We'd put them into the back of the Humvee and we'd put a sandbag over their head and they'd sit on the floor with us right over them, watching them. And then we'd bring them back to this new base there that was in the Kirkuk area. Mm -hmm. And we dropped them off at this detainment facility. And it became, you know, it was like, kind of a fun cowboy game of like, oh, let's get these guys. And yeah. looking at them, not like they were humans, like they were mice and we were cats. Okay. And we were going to fucking get them. They're breaking the law, you know? So, yeah. So there was one time where we were chasing this guy who was in a tractor. This old man had a tractor and he had some chains tied up to the back of the tractor and he was pulling some sheet metal behind the tractor and he was going real slow you know probably as fast as the tractor could go but he's pulling it and pulling it and we're racing up behind him and we're pointing our rifles mm -hmm. you know at him and coming to his side and pointing our rifles at his face and yelling at him and telling him stop 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 get out and he would slow down and then all of a sudden he'd start going again okay and okay. he'd slow down and act like he was going to get out. And then all of a sudden, he'd start going again. And at one point, he slowed down. And I was just about to get out of my vehicle like I was going to dismount. Mm -hmm. But he, he started going. And so we accelerated the Humvee. And my rifle fell out, mm -hmm. out of my hands, you know, over the back of the tailgate. And it was on the ground. Okay. And I'm looking at the ground. And I'm looking at the rifle. And I'm looking up and around. And there were Iraqis all around watching. And they were looking at my rifle on the ground and I was like, oh my God, my heart's beating. Like they're going to get the rifle. They're going to shoot us. They're going to kill us with my own gun. We're yelling for them to stop the vehicle. They wouldn't stop. Finally, the driver stops the truck. I jump out. I run as fast as I can to get my gun and I run back and I climb in the back of the truck and we start chasing the tractor again. Mm -hmm. Well, not five minutes later, we get a call over the radio we need everybody to come inside the complex and we're like what you know what what happened i mm -hmm. can't remember the exact you know the wordage over the radio but we ditched the tractor guy he keeps driving off into the city he won he won okay. and we go we go into the concrete facility and there was a dude who'd been shot oh and and this guy who was there with us he had shot this guy and he shot him in the throat and we all knew that there was no firing warning shots. You only fire upon someone if you're being fired at or they have a rifle, okay. you know, like life or fear of life or death. Yeah. And this guy, he was joking about it. You know, he was just kind of leaning back on his Humvee as this Iraqi man was laying on the ground, bleeding out of his throat, dying. And his brother was crying over him, holding his mm. head and holding his hands and we just stood there and watched. And that dude leaned back against the Humvee with this big smile on his face. And he was like, oh, you know, I was aiming over his head, Sergeant. I was aiming over his head. And, and his punishment for murdering that guy was to fill sandbags in the sun for, it was maybe a week, maybe two weeks. Mm -hmm. and, and that instance right there, that was a big a big thing that I carried with me 
And that was a turning point for me because I thought I was going to join the military and I was going to stay in. I was going to go special forces. I was going to do all these things. And when that happened and I saw that we were killing innocent people and laughing about it, I was like, man, I think I'm on the fucking wrong side. I don't know. Okay. Th this ain't legit. And so anytime I started feeling guilty afterwards or spiraling into you know, drunken depressions, so much of it would go back to the feeling I had watching that man die. So when I went to Nepal and India and I was doing these visualization retreat, visualization meditations, I would sit there a few different times, sometimes laying down, sometimes seated, and I'd visualize this man, this man, not in that instance of what he did, but visualizing his face either sleeping or in peace, in rest. Mm -hmm. I'd visualize him as a child growing up before all those negative imprints had been put on him with racism and hatred. And I'd visualize his, his parents cuddling him and comforting him and him just growing up wanting to be accepted and loved by others, by himself. And I would send all this radiant energy that was within my spirit to this young boy mm -hmm. and love him. And then he would grow and to this man. And then finally, I would visualize him committing the act that made me hate him. Mm -hmm. And I would walk up to him committing that act and I would give him a hug. And I'd tell him that I love him, that I forgive him, that I understand you had a tough background and you have these negative imprints on your spirit and on your mind but i forgive you mm -hmm. and then after i forgave him and would hold him i would poof disappear that person and his family and then picture myself in that exact instance through that same cycle as as a child as a teen as an adult then as a man in that exact situation and then I'd give myself a hug and allow myself to cry and forgive myself for being on that negative, that negative side, that side that was killing. And then I would accept and love myself. And every time I did those meditations, boy, I'd be crying. Woo! Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> you tell that story in the book and you draw a comparison between his punishment, you know, your fellow infantryman filling sandbags for a week. Meanwhile, your stepdad was serving life in prison for murder back in the United States. I felt like this was you working through some really big questions of moral and legal injustices. No doubt about it, man. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I'm not Mr. Mr. Follow the news. And so I'm not going to get too into the debate about the criminal justice system. But I will say that there are people <laughs> who commit heinous crimes, whether it's in the military or outside of the military, and get barely a tap on the wrist. Hmm. And then there are others who commit those same crimes and are punished so severely that it seems yeah, that there's no fairness in the justice system. And so, yeah, looking at at myself as a soldier and at my fellows at that time, 
of course, I'm in a war zone. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. You know, we have to shoot at people and potentially kill them because if not, they will shoot at us and potentially kill us. Mm-hmm. But when there's no guns, when it's out in the open air, it's not like someone, you know, it's not like that dude kicked in a door and walked in and was so startled by someone who came out of the back and then shot them. I can understand. I have a lot more sympathy for some of those actions. But to be out in the open where you can see clear as day people's hands. Yeah, I just I couldn't understand that that was his punishment. And, you know, even today I don't. But but then on the other hand, you know, there's there's my former stepfather and he was so lost Mm. in drugs and alcohol in rage in racism towards him and his fellows as a black man in alaska in fairbanks at the time and he found camaraderie he found brotherhood just like i did in the war Mm -hmm. and in that camaraderie and in that brotherhood he fought back against the enemy who was holding him and all of his people down for generations and Yes, the crime he committed was heinous, man. I mean, but at the same time, as someone who has been there to see lives taken, it's not like he kidnapped this dude and brought him back to the house and tortured him for three days and then and then shot him and then cut him up in pieces. I mean, what people do is horrific. Hmm. This guy, he was accused of shoplifting by a guy at a grocery store and he waited until that guy got off work the guy got off work and he dropped him to his knees and he shot him in the head and he killed him Jeez, okay and yeah that's that's horrible no doubt about it man but you know he was 20 21 years old at the time lost and he got life without parole whereas this dude kills this other guy and gets a week filling sandbags so mm-hmm. you know it's like and then he was still paid like for that month you know i mean mm-hmm. so yeah the the injustice and not to keep going on about it but it was like my brother too you know my brother was he was a 16 year old boy who robbed a liquor store because he was high on drugs and alcohol and man he got hit he ended up getting sentenced to seven years in a maximum security prison. Okay. And he went to Seward as a 17-year-old boy getting his hair cut by Butcher Baker. Mm. I mean, he okay. went in there as this young boy who, yeah, he was on the wrong track. It's like, dude, how are the punishments fair? And how is it that some of us get paid to do these things, get away with them? And so... Yeah, it's uh, there was a lot of processing that went into Warflower, and that's why it took me 15 years from start to finish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are a number of parts in the book where you talk about or allude to abuse. There's this scene where you're in elementary school, and you're approached by a few bullies, and you describe them by their fathers. One father is an abusive alcoholic, and the other died as a result of huffing gasoline and then freezing to death. I felt like this was 
a really good insight into the way that you look at other people. You know, you're not looking at these bullies as just bullies in and of themselves, but as the byproduct of their parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I try every day, man. You know, and it's been been years. I'm 39 now. It's been years of trying to see people not just as who they are and their actions today, but why they are that way. Mm-hmm. And as so many of us know, I mean, there's a pandemic of fatherlessness, of abuse in homes. And yeah, it's easy for me to look at my neighbor right down here who's coming over, you know, with begging for wood, begging for a phone. Somebody just, you know, overdosed on fentanyl right next door. And, mm. you know, to look at them is like, oh, God, you're you're dirtbags. Get your life together. And it's like, man, I try to have more compassion and to learn more about people's stories so there was a reason those bullies were that way. Mm-hmm. I don't know how their dads impacted them, but there's a reason we all are the way we are. And I don't want to live my life blaming my dad, just like I don't want those boys to blame their dads. But I need to have more compassion for people. And by doing that, I think that we need to either one, learn their stories, or two, come up with their stories. Okay. Oh, I bet blah, blah, blah. So... How would you describe your father? Absent. Okay. Yeah, he was a. Uh, he's dead. So okay. That's how I describe him now. But you know, he was he was a a person who had his own struggles, man. And I'm I'm writing this next book right now, and that has been a real challenge for me because you know this next book is broken to five, no, four parts. Okay. Maybe five. If I include this chapter on my dad, okay, this 15 or 20 page essay, if you will, on who my father was and his death. And so I've lived for many years with this deep down subconscious hatred for my dad. Mm-hmm. For I mean, how can you have kids and not call them? I mean, how can you pop out a couple boys or you know the wife did of course but how can you you do this and then go and live in such a depressive state that you'd rather sulk and and live a life of they're better without me come on man like you know so i i see him as a coward okay i see him as all those negative things but on the other hand i try i try hard whether it's through counseling, through different recovery meetings, through talking to my family and writing. Mm -hmm. I try to see him as a guy who was raised in a very abusive household Okay, where he was beaten by stepfathers and he left at like 14 or 15 to go and make his own way and lives a violent life and was a violent man. And so as he grew, he met my mom when, you know, he was 20, 21, 22. She was 19, 20. Mm-hmm. They both got these difficult pasts that are full of drugs and alcohol and violence. And boom, they have kids and think it's going to end. Well, it didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was 
doing what he had learned, doing what he was taught. And then when she left him, he just couldn't forgive himself. And I don't think as I've grown older and I've seen many men distance themselves from their kids and I've learned how painful it is for these men to talk to their kids, to reach out and navigate it through the spouses, Mm -hmm. through the court systems. I've come to see how difficult it can be for them emotionally and logistically to have relationships with the kids and to have all of their money taken from child support if they're backed up. And so, you know, I've come to see him as, well, yeah, he, he screwed up. Yeah, he was violent. Yeah, he didn't reach out. But at the same time, I know that he had so many mental health struggles with, as we say today, trauma in his childhood. Like if he had an ACEs score, it'd probably be the highest it could go. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a victim of those, that type of household. And so, you know, I met my father twice in person. And the first time I met him, he took his shirt off. Like right off the bat, he took his shirt off and he looks at me and he, and he puts his fists up and he goes, can you fight, boy? Really? Can you okay. fight? Yeah. And I was like, what, dude? Like, <laughs> dude, I don't want to fight you, man. Yeah. You know, and he's like, I'm just making sure. Like, can you fight? You know, and he's he's cut. He's strong. He's lean. He's like, you're going to look just like me. You know, it's going to be tough. You got to be able to fight. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to fight you, bro. <laughs> like, Yeah. You know, and part of it was I don't want to get my ass kicked. And the other part was like, <laughs> you know, you're my dad, dude. Give me a hug, bro. Yeah, yeah. So, but as he went on and he died, I was able to learn more about, you know, when my father died and I went to his remains, not his remains, I went to his belongings to clean up his belongings. Mm-hmm. He was living in a Ford Explorer in the Oregon woods okay. for 20 years, dude. 20 he had solar years. panels okay. on top. Yep, yep. It's a long time. He was one of those hermit. Yeah, dude. He was a hermit, man. And uh, he had batteries in the bank. He had like three shirts, one pair of pants, a garbage bag full of sardine cans and muscle milk. Wow, okay. <laughs> and uh, And he had a tote. And in this tote, my brother and I, we were going through it together. In this tote, he had... Every newspaper article I had ever written for the Seward Journal when I was their newspaper writer. Really? He had, yep, he had all these pictures of my brother and I from when we were little boys. He had letters that my brother sent him from prison, letters that I sent him from Iraq. He had all these things. He was our fan. Yeah. He loved us. Yeah. He just had no idea how to love us without burrowing into self-pity and depression, man. So so that instance, him dying and seeing that, you know, I almost cried when I went through that stuff. It was a close one, but mm-hmm. but that gave me so much more understanding and compassion. Like, dang, you know what? Maybe when he told me you were better off without me around, that was one of the first things he ever said to me. Your mother made the best move of her life to take you boys away from me. Maybe he was right. I wonder if you've given any thought to what might have helped him get out of that mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's really easy for me to theorize and try to be the the fixer of everybody. Mm-hmm. 
And I've definitely come up with, you know, a whole host of things of what he could have done or should have done. But in the end, I don't know the struggles that he faced. I Mm -hmm. don't know what his daily routine was like. I don't know enough about who he was to say these are steps you could have taken. Mm -hmm. I just know what has helped me with my steps and that I still, to this day, if I start going down the dark path, mm-hmm. I get that stark male mentality of I should run away. Really? Okay. I should run. Oh yeah, dude. That's your first thought is just to, to get out of there. Yeah, for sure. And it's not, you know, today, I mean, I thank God, man, I got some sobriety under my belt. I don't think, Oh God, I should get a drink or, Oh God, I should, you know, go down and find some pills. I think, I need to run away from these girls because I got two daughters and a wife because they would be so much better without me. Mm. But you know what? That thought comes, man. And at least five minutes later, no longer, poof, it's gone. Yeah. Because I know how it feels to not have your fucking dad around, yeah. you know? So, yeah. so yeah, I, I still have it, man. And your mom, the way you reflect on her, you know, I don't mean to switch the subject here, but I feel like this is kind of, it's related. You know, the way you reflect on your mom in the book is very sweet. It seems like you two had a very sweet relationship despite some of her issues. No doubt about it. Yeah. And you know, there were times that weren't as sweet, but what I chose to do, my counselor tells me is I chose to rewrite do narrative therapy, I guess is what it's called. And, you know, without even knowing it, but when I wrote Warflower, initially it was just all boom, hardcore stuff. Okay. And as time went on, and it was huge, man, it was like 200,000 words. And as time went on, I was chopping away at it. And then I started thinking about the reader. And I had a couple readers who I really trusted who said, you know, it's so nice for us to take a deep breath after you write some of these war scenes and to go back to the comfort of your mother Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and to read some of these sweet spots about your mother and about Alaska. And so, yeah, I, I didn't include a lot of the, the negative stuff that I could say about her. And I do still today try to focus on the positive, but you know, like so many young young punks and as i've grown in time i've come to see like yeah was my mother's decision to leave her husband in eagle river move to seward Mm -hmm. and marry a guy who is in prison for life while i'm a ninth grader in high school and tell me you can stay in eagle river or you can come to seward it's on you was that a really good parental decision Mom, you know, rest in peace. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I don't think it was a very good decision, man. Yeah, and I think that, you know, your answer to the question that I had earlier about, you know, have you ever thought about something that would help your dad, you know, would have helped him out in his predicament. I, I, I loved your answer because it is very, um, you know, you don't know. You know, nobody else knew what your dad was going through besides your dad. And nobody else knew what your mom was going through besides your mom. And to try to, you know, theorize like, oh, this is what would have fixed them is almost devaluing their decisions 
that they did make because we don't know what led to those decisions. Exactly. Yeah, and it's really easy to jump to conclusions and solutions of he should have done this and that and you know mm -hmm, come mm -hmm. on man <laughs> yeah you know i love that we got on here and cut right to the quick because i was pacing around the living room and i was thinking okay i'll be talking about some skateboarding on this show yeah <laughs> i got some skateboard <laughs> questions but we'll get there and it, it's so cool man right into the nitty-gritty you had such a tumultuous upbringing that involved like you said domestic abuse family members going to prison, drugs, alcohol. How do you think your upbringing shaped your life? Well, I'll tell you one thing is right now, I live a pretty simple, grateful life. Okay. I don't have a lot of belongings. I don't have a lot of friends. I keep my circle of trust very small. And don't get me wrong, I got a lot of homies, you know, but mm -hmm. as for like a real this is who I confide in and you confide in me. It's small. I consider myself and anyone who knows me thinks I'm a very private man. Okay. Anyone who were to read my book would say otherwise, but, <laughs> but on the day to day, you know, so I think number one is that I am grateful for every day of my life, man. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I look at my kids and my wife and my animals and we don't know what's going to happen in an hour, in a week, and I don't like holding on to grudges or fights or even having fights with my family, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it also has just taught me the importance of, of stepping back and thinking rationally. Mm -hmm. rather than emotionally because i tell you us starks man we are an emotional bunch <laughs> okay okay so <laughs> yeah and not to mention I i'm hyper guarded i think i think around my kids you know because i did okay. have different instances and so it's like we don't have anybody watch our kids no one you know and it's like we're not bringing them to daycare i don't want them to go through things that both my wife and i went through so do you think that that is limiting at all? Or are you and your wife planning on putting them in school later on? Oh, yeah. I Of course, I do think it's limiting. I'm constantly having the conversations with my wife and weighing pros and cons about these things. And, and we're not like some extremist family raising our kids in a bubble. But at the same time, we're not bringing them over to their friend's house to stay the night. Okay. Now, mind you, one is one and one is three. And if I were, yeah, if I was in Seward with some of my tight homies in Seward, it'd be different. Okay. It really would. But out here, you know, I didn't grow up with these people. I don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very apprehensive to to let the kids and so is my wife you know so yeah it's limiting in the sense that you know we're are we teaching them not to trust people <laughs> uh, maybe a little bit okay. yeah okay. so
getting back to your time in Iraq, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about how you talked about it, you know, earlier in the conversation and the way that it seemed to transition from you being this fighter to you being more of a pacifist. Did I get that correct? Yeah, that's what I go for. <laughs> okay, okay. How do you think that that squared with you being in the Army? Yeah, I think that I... First of all, I want to thank you for reading my book, and I want to yeah. thank you for asking me these questions and having me on here, man. It's, it's really incredible. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's like my dream to have somebody read my work and later talk to me and actually ask questions <laughs> like they really did read it. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, regarding that, man, I, I know 100 percent, dude, like I've been diagnosed PTSD and okay. I fought against that for years. And, you know, I dealt with these problems without going in and seeking help. And I had a counselor probably 10 or 12 years ago who told me, no, about 10, who told me, you know, the sooner you just own up to having PTSD, mm -hmm. the easier your life is going to be because you're going to see that all of these things, these reactions, these triggers, they can be maintained. Mm -hmm. They can be overcome. You just have to learn how. And, and of course, I was like, oh, you don't know what the hell you're talking about, you know, but <laughs> she had said, she said there's, you know, I only told her one war story mm -hmm. and she was like, you know, if that one story would have told, would have happened to me or so many American people, you know how that would impact them? Like, come on. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, you know, and so I would have to say that my number one symptom from my PTSD is avoidance, dude, hands down. Okay. I, I, I went years without telling people I was in the military. I went years trying to study, you know, not trying, studying yoga, studying mm -hmm. all the forms of Buddhism that have to do with non-killing. I became a vegetarian. I was a vegetarian for eight years. I became a vegan learning how to, to be less judgy of okay. these people. Okay. L learning how to, and I hate to say these people, I mean myself too, of all people, L learning how to, to accept the things that we've all gone through and see the struggles. And so, so yes, I tried and I still try to be a very peaceful man. However, here in the past few years, because of my really close friend who is also my sponsor in recovery, okay, he is he is very much like pro gun. Thinks that no matter what, there's always going to be wars. So what I did was just what people have always done, and they're always going to do. Like. You know, you need to be prepared, hunting, fishing, you know, and because I hang out with that guy so much mm -hmm. these past five years, but mainly the past three, it's really allowed me to start seeing that, well, I had a lot of kick-ass training, dude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've got some serious ability to stay cool in hyper-violent situations and know that I can pull the trigger and that I can protect myself and my family. 
And it really hit even harder when I had my first daughter. And then now my second daughter, and I'm married to, you know, a bombshell of a wife. She's gorgeous. Okay, that's great. And it's like, okay. Yeah. So I have to protect my family mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. my girls as they grow up. And so, you know, I think now at 39, I'm finally starting to find that balance of like, okay, I don't have to be the guy with a gun on his on his belt looking like I'm going to kick your ass and shoot you if you mess with me. Mm-hmm. But I can be that guy who is confident to have my gun and to have my fists and be willing to stand up and protect people if need be. So I'm not a pacifist. I'm I'm trying to be more like that, but but yeah, and to keep going, not to try to keep rambling, but you know, a couple podcasts I listened to, you know, one guy had me on his show and talking to this guy who was a, a former Navy SEAL and listening to him and his buddies and realizing, you know what, man? So many of us, it doesn't matter if we're in the military or not, we've gone through so much. So do I need mm-hmm. to just like push it down into this black hole and act like I'm just Mr. Peace and love? No, because I'm not. Like, I get fucking pissed, dude. So <laughs> <laughs> we all do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You say in the book, the song, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning, played in your head. Mm-hmm. And you knew that your favorite country singer would be proud of you, you know, in the things that you're doing over there. How often were you thinking of other people's reactions to what you were doing? So much. You know, because I wasn't having a lot of contact with people back home. Okay. You know, my first year, it was right when the war you want to call it whatever it is started in 2003 and you know we parachuted in during the invasion and so you know for the first three months there were no calls home and then it became like you'd have to wait in a line for five hours if you will and we'd Mm -hmm. park our humvee and so to make a long story short man yeah so often i thought about my buddies in seward my mom my dad these patriotic country singers. And I thought how I was going to make them proud, how I was going to continue allowing people to practice freedom of speech and freedom to sing whatever they want to sing. And so, yeah, man, I am to this day, one of those guys who really needs validation from others. And That was a way for me to give myself the validation while I was there. And you also say that your fellow infantrymen were closer to you than your own brother. How is your relationship with your brother? My brother and I are closer today than we've ever been. Okay. Now, are are we like 100% honest about every single thing that comes up? No, man, we both still have struggles. And is anybody 100% honest with anybody? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. I really don't. You know, we all have these thoughts in our heads. So, so yeah, today, man, I mean, my brother and I have spent a lot of time together out here on the property. We've gone on road trips together, just him and I. We've camped, we've fished, we've played music and 
cried our eyes out, grieving the deaths of our mothers and father and mm -hmm. his prison time and my war time. And, and we've talked in extensive detail about the things that I went through in war and the things he went through. And then we both try every day to be sober. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. because of that, you know, we both started on this sober path around the same time. And so instead of having that bond of like, okay, we just get drunk and fight each other mm -hmm. and, and hate each other because of things that we've done to one another, we were able to start talking about things that we went through. And so, yeah, because of that, man, I'd have to say that we are closer today than we've ever been. And where does skateboarding fit into all of this? Dude, skateboarding, man, it's, it's the coolest, the coolest thing that anybody can do on this planet. <laughs> Straight up. So yeah, I'm, I started skating when I was, I think I was five or six. My brother and I got a little Bart Simpson skateboard down in Missouri and we shared it. And, you know, I have this one picture where we're both holding it and my brother's got this big smile and I've got this jealous look like, okay. give me the skateboard. <laughs> and, and so since then, I just, you know, of course I had a couple relapses, if you will, on rollerblading. I loved rollerblading <laughs> too, man. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but, but skating for me, especially, you know, when I moved to Eagle river, and my brother started skating when he was in like fifth, you know, hard, like fifth grade mm -hmm. and sixth grade. And I started skating. And then I started hanging out with all that Eagle River crew back in the day. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, back in, I don't know, the late 90s, you know, I was neighbors in Eagle River with with the Gabrielson brothers, Eric and Adam. And we would skate all the time together. And then. I later became close friends with, you know, my brother's friends that were older than me, you know, Chris Graves and Aaron Took and the mm -hmm, list goes mm -hmm. on of this whole crew, JT Bryant, that we would skate. And and from that really young age, I was able to, you know, catch the people mover from Eagle River. You know, this was like sixth and seventh grade, catch the people mover, go to Anchorage, skate parking garages. You know, if it was wintertime, skate around. If it was summertime, DSL opened and we would just hang out there and skate outside. And, you know, I was like one of their little amateur sponsor guys, you know, so okay, I get discounts okay. or whatever back in the day. Yeah. And, uh, and I think how it stuck with me through all of it is, is that skateboarding taught me what Rodney Mullen talks about in his YouTube, in his TED talk mm -hmm. about what we learned from skateboarding. And it taught me so much about resilience, about going out on my own and doing it on my own without anybody holding my hand, about falling and busting my ass and getting back up and trying again, mm -hmm. about perfecting the kickflip by doing it over and over and over. And then mm -hmm. it gave me that camaraderie and that realness. And and I'm still in shape. You know, I'm 39 years old. I hate to keep rambling, but I remember when I was in seventh <laughs> grade and going to my PE teacher and being like, hey, you know, you have this assignment for us to, 
to do exercise for 20 minutes when we're home, does skateboarding count? Yeah. And he was, you know, one of those football-minded guys of like, no, 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 you have to run or jog or something. I was like, oh, dang. (laughs) Well, you know, I look back at a lot of those guys that I was in school with who were doing those sports, and today, man, they're fat. They're all (laughs) chunky-ass, you know, not all of them, of course, you know, and I'm not trying to generalize, but... But me and some of my homies that have kept skating, even though it's not as intense as it was when I was younger, you know, we're still in shape, man. Do you skate at your place in Happy Valley? No. You don't? Okay. No, no, I don't. It's all, uh, yeah, where I skate now is I'll skate in Nanilchik at the tennis court. I'll skate at a gas station in Anchor Point. Okay. And, of course, I put a couple, you know, plywood sheets down to skate, like, off my deck. Um, and I'll go to Homer and skate. You know, I, mm-hmm. I at this age, I'm less into, especially after all the breaks mm-hmm. I've had, I'm less into jumping downstairs and doing 360 flips, and I'm more into just – Popping some ollies, doing some carves, maybe board slides, little 50s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. If I'm getting this timeline correctly, your timeline with you getting into skateboarding, you know, you're taking the people mover into Anchorage to skate with your buddies. This was about the time that you had some issues with alcohol and pills, right? I got into pills a few years later when I moved to Seward. Okay, okay. When I was, you know, early years of skateboarding, I was not getting into alcohol. I got into alcohol, and I say early years as in, like, elementary. I got into alcohol, like, seventh grade. Oh, okay, okay. Eighth grade, and that is really when I was trying to impress my brother and my cousin, older family members, and their friends, and then... I got a little older, eighth grade, and then ninth grade, especially when I was going to Chugiak, and I was hanging out with, you know, these older skaters, and boom, then it was on. Okay. You know, okay, yeah, you guys all chew and smoke and drink and smoke bud, and so then I started really hitting it hard, and and then it got even worse, you know, after we moved to Seward, and then I just... I became a full-blown, you know, bringing alcohol to, to school and drinking in the classroom. And, and I was just drunk or stoned every day, you know, so. Okay. Whether that's because of skateboarding and I was hanging out with the wrong crew, I don't necessarily think it's because of skateboarding. I think even if I would have been hanging out with different crews, I probably would have found it at those times. What do you think, you know, made you drink like that so habitually? Was it just because, you know, kids will be kids or was it maybe because that was modeled for you? Yeah, what a great question. And there's so much debate about all of this. Is is alcoholism a disease? Is it a choice? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know those answers, but I know for me at that young age, I was. I was drinking because I was trying to make friends and I was trying to be accepted into these people's groups. Okay. And then it later, that's how it started. And then after a couple years, when I moved to Seward, then it became, you know, as it's written about in the book, I mean, my brother went to prison and I was the one who was called into 
greening middle school office with two police officers and my mother crying and they interrogated me and I told them on record everything my brother had told me about his crime that I didn't believe. I mm -hmm. thought he was lying. Okay. And so that document, that recording was used in the court of law. And so I started thinking of myself as the snitch who put my brother away. Mm, okay. If I wouldn't have done that, then blah, blah, blah. He would have never gone. And you know what? As years have gone on, I've realized that, I mean, they would have got him no matter what. Like that wasn't my fault. But when I got to Seward and all of a sudden these people are like, oh, dude, your dad's the guy over there in prison who's blah, blah, blah. Oh, wow, your brother's in prison. I was in shutdown mode. Mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. So I was just living in that shame and secrecy. And so I found another buddy or two who were also, you know, from dysfunctional families. And we just started drinking together, doing really poor in school. And that was just how we passed the time. Really, I believe to escape the struggles in home. And you've been sober for nine years now, right? Yeah, boy. Yeah, congratulations. That's huge. Thanks, man. Yeah. What got you sober? Um, just being so tired, man. Being, you know, I, I just got, I got so tired of that endless torture of spending every waking hour trying to either smoke weed, smoke cigarettes, find some money to get some alcohol, go out to try to make friends at the bars, make mm -hmm. friends for a couple weeks, and then, boom, you're not friends anymore because you're not drinking with them. Mm -hmm. And I just got so tired of that cycle as well as the cycle of just feeling like I want to quit, but I can't. Mm -hmm. And then having those periods of abstinence. You know, I had three months, six months, a year without drinking, and I would just be thriving. You know, I felt so good and healthy, and I was still smoking bud at those times, but it wasn't like my alcohol. I didn't black out on bud. I wasn't an angry, abusive person who wanted to fight people. Like, I holed away and played guitar and cried, you know? It's like... Okay. So... So when I finally got sick and tired of all that and I realized, I remember I was living out here by myself. I was barely paying the mortgage on a disability income that I had at the time. And I couldn't pay my minimum credit card amount. Okay. And I was just drinking and smoking it all the way. And I remember just dropping to my knees and being like, I'm just done. Mm. You know, I... I either have to commit suicide or I have to quit drinking. And it's funny as I look back now, it's like, okay, that's definitely irrational thinking. There's other options. <laughs> yeah. What do they call that? Stinking thinking, right? <laughs> exactly. But at the time that's, that's how I felt, you know? So, so yeah, it was, uh, it was all those things that had piled up and then seeing how many people in my life were drunks and starting to look at alcohol really as an evil thing mm -hmm. that I had just succumbed to and it wasn't helping me anymore. 
that's when I started really making the steps to to get off of the booze, man. And was the thought of suicide, was that a real thought for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can't say that, you know, I'm... I would have ever been like courageous, if you want to call it that. I'm. This is a sensitive topic, I understand, but enough to like really go through with it and pull the trigger. But in this next in this next book that I'm working on putting out, like there was a scene at that time when I first got sober or before I was even sober. I got sober in 2014. This was in 2012, where another time I'm sitting under the tree, and I've got my 30 out six and I'm crying and I'm having those overwhelming feelings of abandonment by dad, abandonment by brother, abandonment by mother. I'm out here by myself 200 plus miles from my friends in Seward. No one cares and just feeling so sorry for myself, really. And then when you pile onto it, the things I did in Iraq and I've got no money and my truck is broke down and the only work I can get is like 12 miles away and I'm riding my bike there in the morning to work as a dishwasher. Hmm. I sat under that tree with my 30 out six, man. And I started pulling it towards my face until my dog started crying and looking at me and crying. And, and that stopped me. And so definitely suicide was a real thought for me. And in the course of my sobriety, it's not that it just poof went away. Hmm. It, doesn't come up now now it's the runaway but five years ago seven years ago it still came up quite often so yeah man a lot of people struggle with suicide and i wish more of us talked about it because it's a pain in the ass when you get those feelings of escape because suicide in my opinion is another form of escape you know Mm -hmm. in the same way that you have this inclination to run away when you get those thoughts how do you tamp them down yeah well thankfully today i don't have the thoughts that i'm going to commit suicide Mm -hmm. but i do think about running away and i tamp them down generally by going outside and going for a walk a good walk man so i'll go for a walk and i'll look around i'm gonna live out in the woods and i'll look around and i'll see the trees and I'll see the birds and I'll see the mountains in the distance and the volcanoes. And then I'll go back to those feelings I had at those silent retreat centers, those feelings I had when I was doing yoga. And at the end of my Ashtanga session, I was doing a headstand and thinking of myself as a spiritual being, Mm -hmm. that this is another physical obstacle that's setting, that's setting me back that, it's my emotions that are getting in the way that, that I am a spiritual being. And, and really, when I'm able to look at that, I'm able to see that these big things aren't quite as big as I thought they were. Mm-hmm. And then after I calm myself down and I use that coping skill to chill out and, and practice deep breathing, then I'm able to look at the realistic effects of what would happen if I walked away from my family. Mm-hmm. Really? Do I want my daughters and my wife to have to go without having my support? Mm-hmm. Like, dude, I'm a kick-ass dad. 
I'm a great <laughs> husband. Like, I mean, we all have struggles. Yeah. And so I think about the way that they would be impacted and how much it hurt me not to have a dad. Mm -hmm. And then I realize, and then I start into the positivity. Okay, well, you might have overreacted in this instance when your wife said, oh, you don't give me enough time for beating. And you said, oh, yeah, I do. What are you talking about? Whatever it is, <laughs> I might have overreacted. Okay. I might be taking it personally. Okay. But in general, I do this well. I do this well. So then I go down that list of the positives mm -hmm. of what I bring to my family. And that keeps me planted here and not running away. Mm -hmm. And then I always, every single day, I wake up in the morning and I, I make my bed and I'll, you know, bring my daughter downstairs or whatever. And then I'll go back and I'll get on my knees and I will pray and I pray to God. I don't know what God is, man, but I'll pray to God, please, God, help me with my struggles today mm -hmm. and don't let me drink alcohol mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I know that drinking alcohol, man, that... That's not a solution. So it's just another escape, you know? Yeah. At one point during your deployment in Iraq, you were reading The Shining by Stephen King. You'd go out and complete these missions, and then you'd come back and read about addiction and ghosts. What was that like? Well, it was entertaining. <laughs> it's a great book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love Stephen King, man. So, yeah, you know, I've I've always been big on escape through reading. And it it first started through R.L. Stein mm -hmm. and all of his goosebumps. Go goosebumps. Dude, yep. come on, bro. <laughs> Those are so good. And then it went into Dean Koontz and then Stephen King came around and so yeah, at that time, you know, when I was going through some things that that were challenging, it made it where where if I got into those stories and that story in particular, I could just completely escape from what I was going through. I could disassociate, if you will, mm -hmm. and I could think of myself in the shoes of Jack Torrance or as the observer and think, you know what? What I'm doing ain't so bad, man. <laughs> like, th this ain't nothing compared to being that lady stuck at that hotel, man. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd also do your own writing during this time, recalling the events of a recent mission. Was it natural for you to make a record of those events, or was that something you had to condition yourself to do? No, I've always been a journalist of some sort. You know, I've... Uh... I like keeping a diary, and ever since I can remember, my mother got me diaries and my brother, and she would encourage us to write. And, and yeah, it, it, it started as a, a poetry thing. I love writing poetry, and when okay. I was a kid, I'd write poetry. But then as I grew older and then when I was in Iraq, it really did become this thing that I believed that what I'm doing is something that really does need to be documented mm -hmm. and and I don't know how else to document it rather than writing it and so it would also give me that disassociation you know warflower mm -hmm. was all fiction it, it was a fiction story 
until finally one of my last readers was like, come on, man, you're not fooling anybody. We (laughs) know this is a memoir. And, you know, for years I wrote about it from uh, outside perspective that all these things happened to so-and-so that he went here, he went there. So then that was how I wrote those journal entries in Iraq too. You know, it was always from a bird's eye view looking down. And so, yeah, man, that really helped me, I think, to process some of the things I went through without, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe a way to just disassociate from them while also keeping history. But yeah, it was something that that I I did and, and I feel like I had to do and I still do today. I also wonder if that's what you were familiar with. You know, The Shining is fiction. And I I don't know this. You can, you know, back this up or correct me. But if you're reading a lot of fiction, if you're reading more fiction than nonfiction, then chances are that's what you're going to try to emulate. Hands down. Okay. And then, and then looking at myself as like, who am I, little podunk drunk alaskan skate rat like why would i have a memoir like who would really care to read about my story and so it was that self-doubt thank you very very much man yeah 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 and i've come i've come to learn now that there's actually quite a few people who would what was it like for you to get all of that personal history in one place to be able to look at your story in full like that with the book it's really monumental it feels like if I were to die tomorrow or even today, that I was able to pass down some history to my children and they would know so much more about who their father was, who their uncle, who their grandparents. And and so I feel like I've done a job well done. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing that's crazy is, you know, I wrote that and I told myself, okay, I'm not going to write another one that's like that. But this one I'm working on now, it's not a part one, part two by any means, but it basically starts where Warflower left off. And so, you know, I've had people who read it and they're like, I can't believe you were able to pack so much of your life into that. There's no way you have more. And I'm like, well, this, you know, Warflower... (laughs) I mean, Warflower ended up being, I think, 67,000 words. The one I've got right now is 100,000. Okay, so it's a lot bigger. Yeah, man. And has your wife read Warflower? Yeah. Yep. What has she said about it? She told me that I needed to to get it self-published. Okay. She she read it, and same with my, my good buddy, my sponsor. He read it, and both of them... It was a it was a real turning point. Um, I had applied to go to graduate school for writing because I was thinking that the only way for me to get my book out there was to make connections and to get more education. And so I applied to this grad school in Idaho. All my former professors, they were guaranteeing me like, "There's no way you're not going to get in. We've read your work. Mm-hmm. We've read your book," and I didn't get in. Really? And, okay. Man, I was. I was pretty disappointed and my wife and my sponsor were both like, dude, you got this book, man. Yeah. I mean, publish it, get it out there. And you know, I had had hundreds of rejections from agents who 
didn't think they could sell it. And so I thought that self-publishing was like the epitome of failure regarding publishing a book and that it would end up looking so trashy and blah, blah, blah. But with my wife's encouragement and my buddies, I was able to look deeper into those things. And now it's like, you know, Warflower has been published and I get, I mean, I get quite a bit of, of reviews or feedback from people and new opportunities that come up because of it. And people are talking to me about the way that their dads are now talking to them. And it's sparking mm. this conversation amongst so many people and my wife at least every couple of days, because she knows I need a lot of validation, is like, <laughs> Robert, <laughs> she's like, Robert, what you are doing with Warflower and now this next book is changing the world. It is changing people. Please keep doing it. And, you know, this one I'm right now, it's like, God, it shows me going through these, like, latching onto this girl and that girl and, okay, and okay. Tr trying to quit drinking and... And I'm sending it all to my wife. You know, I'm on like the fourth draft and I'm sending it to her as I'm going through this draft before I send it to the editor. Mm -hmm. And she loves it. She's like, oh my God, I can't wait to read more. And and I'm sitting here thinking, oh my God, she's going to hate me because I was just constantly eyeing every girl up. Okay. You know? <laughs> so she also understands she's been sober 10 years man and so she okay, understands yep what we go through when we're in our alcoholism mm -hmm. and the insanity that comes from just constantly looking for the next solution or fix so yeah my wife read war flower she loves it and she's reading the next one and she loves it too man so i'm just so lucky to have her yeah, that's great. Thanks. How about your daughters? When they're old enough to read it, what do you hope they get out of it? I hope more than anything they get the the confidence that they are from a bloodline that is not just laborers and addicts and soldiers and fighters but also people who use their brain to write books mm -hmm. and so i hope that they're inspired to also believe in themselves and their own intellectual pursuits more than anything yeah, that's great you, you mind if i ask you something yeah go ahead so okay so i'm interested as a father and as someone who grew up without a father what are some of the positive influences and ways that you deal with your everyday life being someone, if I'm correct, who was raised by a kick-ass dad? <laughs> so I have a pretty non-traditional dad. Uh -huh. He... You know, I, I have described him before as kind of the oldest brother in all of my siblings. You know, I have uh, an older brother, um, Jake, and then another older brother, Derek, and then a younger brother, Colton, and then now a sister who I guess it's not now. You know, she's in her mid-20s. But um, my dad was just always uh, on an adventure. 
mm-hmm. you know he was he was always that person looking for the next thing to do the next thing to experience and even today you know he has a uh, kind of a surf complex in mexico that he and my mom built and that's where he spends a lot of his time and so i think among many other things that i have taken from him is that if you want to do something in this world if you want to be somebody you be that person and you continue to try to be that person because the fact is the person that who is that person right now that maybe you're looking up to like i want to be in that position they're not going to be in that position forever Mm -hmm. you know there's a line and you're in that line and depending on how much you work toward that goal that will determine how close to the front of that line you are so all that to say that if you want to be something if you want to do something that gives your life meaning whatever that is you know it could be anything you know my dream isn't your dream kind of thing Mm -hmm. um do it and pursue it because not all the time is it about talent i think that the talent in so many things so many things in life is the perseverance. Mm-hmm. What an important lesson to learn from someone who's living that life rather than just talking about it. Yeah, I think he, my dad, Scott, has always led by example, possibly maybe unconsciously. You know, I, again, I can't, you know, like you were saying about your dad you're not trying to put yourself in his mindset and I'm not trying to put my myself in my dad's mindset, but I know that whatever he does, is it's a hundred percent all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that is so awesome, man. Thank you very much for sharing that. Absolutely. So throughout this conversation, we've talked about so many facets of your past, all the stuff that made you who you are today. But what does your life look like right now? My life is so awesome, man. It's <laughs> it really is. It's just crazy. Yeah. So my life right now is I live on 20 acres in Happy Valley, Alaska, which is in between Nanilchik and Anchor Point on the southwestern, south central Kenai Peninsula. Um, I own this little 700 square foot house outright we paid it off a few years ago my wife and i and so we have our own small farm slash garden business out here where we have a little yurt we've done airbnb stuff we grow crops we sell some we eat some we have chickens and goats and ducks and a bunch of forest for the kids and myself to run around and and try to live off the land as much as possible. Well, Bob, those are all the questions I have for you. Gosh. You know, I want to thank you for this conversation, your insight, and your story. I want to thank you so much for having this podcast. I've been able to listen, and now I'm going to go deeper into your backlist and what you're doing to share these stories of Alaskans with Alaskans is really 
an important historical piece for our state, man. So thank you so much. Right on, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, bro. You have a good day. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors.